0: You're listening to Special Education Matters, a regular podcast about things that matter in special education. I'm your host, Michael Boll, and I am the proud father of an 18-year-old boy with autism. In our continuing series where we focus on special education advocates in California, today I speak with Brenda Rogers. In my experience, talking with various advocates in California, a common theme has emerged— Many advocates uh, do not really expect to focus their energy, their career sometimes, on assisting special education students. Rather, a turn in their life often spurs them to becoming an advocate. Brenda Rogers, whom I talked with today, had just one of those turns in her life when her son, at a young age, was not being treated appropriately by the school system. Brenda shares her story and the reason she continues to be a passionate advocate today. Brenda Rogers, thanks so much for joining me on the program today.
1: You're welcome.
0: It's nice to have you here, and we'd like to start off just with the basics, a little bit about you. What sort of services do you provide, and what parts of California do you cover?
1: Well, I'll answer the second question first. I cover Southern California. Specifically, I do work in Long Beach. I work in Mm -hmm. Orange County, any city in Orange County, and I'll take cases in Riverside. Uh, Occasionally, I'll take a case further away, but... It really depends upon what, how bad somebody needs help, and if they don't have access to other advocates near them. And um, first question is, uh,
0: yeah, what, what was of, the first question? <laughs> yeah, what services do you provide? So we understand you're lost. You're Southern California based, and then yes. what, what sort of services do you provide that people would might be looking for?
1: Okay, well, in general, I'm a special education advocate. What that means is. Is that I help parents in special education or parents who believe they need special education and can't get the school district to assess their child um, to access their child's needed programs and services in the public school, and that is a, a three pronged approach. Okay. Um, I don't practice law, I am I went to graduate school in sociology, I did not go to law school. I don't practice law. What I think I practice, if you want to ask me. Is I, I think I practice institutional bureaucracy, and that's a mix of three things. It's a mix of special education law, bureaucracy, and psychoeducational evaluations or, or psychology, and then from the background of social, sociology and social psychology. So I'm mixing things in order to work a bureaucracy. And it's not a practice of law. In fact, if you ask me what I do more than um, keep in mind a child's rights, which are always there, that's the only Mm. reason we can do this, right, is I am reading psychoeducational evaluations and I'm getting other evaluations. And I'm making sense of the work of experts. And experts are also ranked very differently. So Mm -hmm. some experts aren't very expert and some are, (laughs) are, are, are quite top of their game so i'm I'm practicing you know working a bureaucracy within their system and the different levels of of complaint that you can do in a bureaucracy in a school system. And I'm keeping in mind the rights, and I'm making sense of evaluations because special education is about a child's need. And how you establish need is with assessment.
0: So it sounds like you help interpret assessments, that you help uh, provide suggested evaluators of people that you trust. And then I w- want to guess that you're probably there at IEP meetings w- as needed to help the parents or counsel the parents as they go through
1: that. Yes, um, I do go to IEP meetings, um, but that's just the formal part of it, right? Uh-huh. Mostly as a as an advocate, I think the most important part of what I do is I write a parent concerns letter. Um what that means is is that I'm evaluating the case based upon the evidence, the psychoeducational evaluation, the grades, mm-hmm. the documented um, maybe behavior problems, you know incident reports or lack of incident reports, different things, different records that I have. And I'm writing a parent concerns letter, which is essentially a report of what I found. and the report is going to highlight the student's needs, the demonstrated needs, and also ask for assessments to um, possibly, look at other needs that aren't identified so ba- maybe indicated by the data
0: so you 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 do the role you help the parents in their role to say this is what i would like and need or expect from the district
1: well what they'd like i think the statement is this is what my child needs from the district
0: okay got it i see what you're saying and then uh, if the
1: district resists that
0: do you help with going uh forward from there to a certain extent yes
1: okay um, uh, part of advocacy has now includes um, being very careful about how you handle due process. Um, so, in California, uh, due process has changed hands about 10 years ago, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the Office of Administrative Hearings took over due processes in California. Mm-hmm. So, a due process is um, what one of the attorneys I talk with says a tribunal. She says due process is a tribunal. It is not in a court. It is held at the district. It is held um, by judges. The judges are part of a tribunal in this case, it's from office of administrative hearings. It used to be McGeorge school of law. The office of administrative hearings is um, an interesting group of people. Uh, I like the people that I've met. Of course, I thought they were um, nice and everything, but they've done some things lately that have changed advocacy. So for example, Advocates have been doing due process with, with parents since special education began in California, Mm -hmm. but the office of administrative hearings called, um, the, the bar association and asked the bar association to write an opinion about whether or not advocates can do a due process with a parent. In other words, represent a parent or do it for them Mm or do their due process for them. Um, without a law license. And the bar came back with an opinion and the bar wrote a statement saying that advocates cannot do due process because they're not attorneys. And essentially by doing the due process, the advocates practicing law. OH didn't tell them that some districts in Southern California have non-lawyers representing them in due process. Okay. okay. Right? So I was at a COPA conference this year. COPA is the Council of parent attorneys and advocates. Mm -hmm. And I was at a session with Tanya White Leather. She's an attorney in Southern California who I love. And Tanya said they just didn't happen to mention when they asked the bar association for an opinion uh, that advocates represent school districts and that advocates have been doing due process for parents since special education began in California. So I consider that as an advocate, a political move by OAH. And I think it's a very difficult problem for parents. And it's worth mentioning whenever possible, because there are a lot of parents who cannot afford attorneys and there's not enough attorneys to go around. So what happens when parents can't now can't even get help at all to do a due process. If they have a case like my case where the school system systematically denied my son access to edu- yeah, and education. I, I
0: wanted to ask you about that. So what, and this goes back to the basic question of what influenced your decision to be an advocate. And you do have this story about your son at a young age that sort of, I guess, woke you up to the idea that you need to be an advocate as
1: a parent. Uh, okay. So what got me into this was my son. My son um, was diagnosed with ADHD at like age four because he was having some um, behavior problems in uh, preschool. I was a community college student and my son attended Orange Coast College daycare program. Mm-hmm. And um, he was, he was just, he was just wild. You know, him and another student got into a case where they like kind of vandalized the bathroom. You'd say vandalized, but they were four and they just threw the toilet paper and did some stuff, you know, but this kind of thing was impulsive and he couldn't control it. All right. And it, it wasn't like you could just treat him meanly and say, you're not supposed to do that and, yeah. and expect him to actually not do that again. Because if he had the impulse to do something, he would typically act on the impulse. So I noticed that there was a problem. I got a diagnosis. I went to the school system and I told them even before he started, um, I was living on campus at UC Irvine, uh, at family housing. Mm -hmm. So I went to Turtle Rock Elementary and and had a meeting with the principal and said, I'm bringing somebody who has been diagnosed with ADHD. He's impulsive. He's a good kid, but he's impulsive. And that principal actually uh, left she wasn't the principal next year. And I don't know whether or not she told the new principal, but when my son got to school, he started running off campus. Uh, uh, and okay. so he went to school for about a year and a half before um, they were willing to diagnose him. He was in first grade when the, they, well, they don't, school doesn't diagnose, but when they identified him as a student with special needs, they identified him in the first grade. And so I I went with it for the for the most part for the whole of first grade. And um, I didn't know what I was doing. I was sitting in meetings with people who were professionals. And the first meetings I attended were actually really good. It looked like they were doing a committee meeting where they were identifying the needs of the student, where they, they really did flesh out the fact that he had a high IQ and he had very low reading achievement and that there was mm-hmm. a big gap. So he qualified under a student with learning disabilities. And, and they did a good job of identifying what the reading problems were. But that was the end of the good job. They did a great job at evaluation in the beginning so that we understood fundamentally what was going on with my son in school. But then treating it, they didn't treat him as lawfully as they assessed him. <laughs> so that's how I got into special ed. They convinced me my son needed to go to another play uh, another classroom. It's called a special day class. It's for students who have more severe problems that they that cannot be helped in the regular classroom. Right. And they said, well, they they had put him in a system where he wasn't allowed to play on the playground with other students. And they had a really nice resource teacher to hang out with him during recess, but he was segregated and isolated. And they said, well, if he wants to play, he needs to go to this classroom. Uh. And I didn't. Know what I was doing right mm-hmm. but I volunteered once a week in the school and and so after I, I allowed them to do that I, I was volunteering in the class and they literally weren't allowing my son to even access the curriculum they were telling him stop talking you can't give synonyms for a word this is what English was reduced to in that mm-hmm. classroom you mm-hmm. would talk about a word and try to identify the meaning well not only would he identify the meaning he'd give synonyms he was living in a home where me and other graduate students were talking to each other he was exposed right. to a very large vocabulary and he picked it up because auditorially he was just fine so he we would start talking and they'd shut him down in the special day class and that's what got me to start fighting him i'm like this is this isn't working out and then once i got him back in the regular classroom they put him with a very quiet teacher who wouldn't say mean things to him, but she was a very mean teacher. She would look at him, and I'd volunteer once a week and watch her look at him and, and just hate him with her eyes. She hated the fact he was in her classroom, and I'd leave and cry every time I went into her classroom because mm-hmm. I could see that it was silence. She was communicating to him that he was a real pain in her butt. You know, and I, and that's what made me do, that was it right there. The fact that they had put him in that class for special needs that wasn't appropriate for his intelligence and then put him in the regular classroom without any support with a teacher who was looking at him and just treated him so badly. And in the meantime, sending him home like every other day, if he did anything wrong, they would send him home and I'd have to sign him out and bring him to school with me. Okay. And so, you know, what do you do in a situation where your son is denied education, um, treated really badly and, and you learn, and I came to learn that um, they, they were violating my son's rights left and right. Uh, what can you do? You have to fight.
0: So obviously, there's a strong story about your decision to become an advocate. And if we go forward, we're talking, gosh, about 18 years or so now. And now you're an advocate today still. And, and so given that background and that history, what do you find the most interesting or compelling parts of being an advocate for, for others now today?
1: Well, the most compelling part is that I realized that the school system has a huge power to influence the future of a of a human being. Mm-hmm. And sure. when you send your son to that institution or your daughter to that institution, they have a huge influence about over how that person sees themselves. So, so if you you're an institu- you're an actor in an institution, and you're part of a group of people who are are actively making somebody see themselves as a bad person you can bet that you're a huge influence over whether or not that person turns out to be a bad person mm-hmm. so what i'm compelled by is the i cannot close my eyes to the truth of what I'm seeing. That institution in Uh certain cases is practicing what I consider to be evil. They're damaging people's futures. They are stopping people from feeling good about themselves, teaching them that they're bad and stupid, and then they are producing future prisoners. So there's a statement in special education that people call the the school to prison pipeline. And it's based upon – certain public figures who have admitted in public that they base their prison needs for the next 10 years on the current reading level of fourth grade boys. So that, that, that our, our public officers or people that are entrusted with, um, and making decisions over what's going to, what we're going to need in a society, in the society in the future Mm -hmm. have made the decision that that we realize there's a correlation between uh, males, a lot of males, access to education and their ability to read and, and ending up a future prisoner. Okay. And so th- uh, this is what I can't close my eyes to. I, my father died um, not being able to read. He was a, a very keen welder. He worked in the aerospace industry. He always had a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was illiterate because he had a reading disability that my grandmother was never able to deal with. And so, in my family, now I've had people at the school system tell me, well, you were just, you know, you, you were just a drug addict and that's why your son can't read. But what they didn't know is that I may have been a teenage drug user. I was a delinquent myself. What they didn't know is that, um, yeah, I changed my life i'm I'm not a drug addict, and that my father died illiterate, and that reading disabilities and hyperactivity run in families because it's part of somebody's genetic makeup. And so what I was dealing with was a genetic predisposition to a reading disability and hyperactivity. And um, the school system has laws that prevent them from doing what they did to my son. If you know your rights, right? Sure, right. And so what compels me is, is that people are acting illegally. They're, I consider a lot of behavior in public schools, the kind of treatment that I got was white collar crime. Mm-hmm. If you're violating fundamental special education laws in your practice in your administration of special education or education in general, and you're the school principal and you are excluding somebody from school, maybe for half the school year sent home every other day, you are practicing white-collar crime with that student because the law says you have to give a manifestation term- determination before you expel somebody, right? Right. My son was not given a manifestation determination or expelled, and they Actually, when I filed a state complaint against these people, they hid all the sign-in, sign-out sheets and all my Uh, son's records. So what does that tell you? I actually – I met somebody years later who was the nurse for Irvine, Mm -hmm. and she heard my name, and she heard the fact – I must have mentioned my son Chase. And she said, I have to ask you, is your son's son's name Chase Rogers? And I said, yes, it is. And she said, you know, I just want to tell you there's this weird thing happening in the school. I have been practicing as a nurse here for – you know." eight years, 10 years for the last five years. every time I open the Turtle Rock Elementary nurse's drawer, I see the file of Chase Rogers. I don't know what that means. I just thought I should tell you because it's the strangest thing. I've never had a file in any other school system, um, in any other school sitting in the nurse's office for five years. And I'm like, why she told me that? I don't know, but I can tell you where my son's records were. They were from the district. They were put in the nurse's office at Turtle Rock. That's why I call it crime. Yeah,
0: yeah, okay? sure. Because that's, that's so, intent, yeah.
1: Yeah, so that's intent. And I see that. And if you want to talk about what compels me, what compels me is I know that there are people in public schools who are, through ignorance or through intent, are violating special education laws to the detriment of, of students and families. Because when the school is not treating the student procedurally, legally, it usually creates a lot of stress upon the family, right? and And mm-hmm. so I've lived that, and I can't knowingly watch this happen and sit back and do nothing. So I created a nonprofit organization, Access Center for Education. We help kids go from sad to glad in school, and I am there for parents who who are seeking help, and I'm willing to work with people who have limited means. And i I had limited means, and i mm-hmm. I want to be there and partner with parents who are willing to challenge this treatment, this non-legal treatment, it's illegal behavior by people working in schools again, either by intent or not by ignorance. Some people just don't know sure sure and i and I'm there to um, help the parents get treated legally.
0: okay, so if people are interested in you know we we've had a chance to hear your story and the passion behind what you're doing. If people are interested in getting in contact with you, what's the best way to reach you?
1: Uh, Email. Uh, I have an email at sadtoglad at mac.com. I also have the website, www.sadtoglad.org. And you can get my phone number on the website. You can um, email me.
0: Well, Brenda, I want to thank you for sharing your story and your passion with us today. Thanks for listening to another edition of Special Education Matters. For more information, including show notes, head to our website, csnlg.com slash listen. And if you like what you hear, please uh, consider giving us a review on iTunes. Those reviews bring us lots of happiness. I'm your host, Michael Bull, and we will talk again soon.